Hello and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am so delighted to say that this podcast is brought to you by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. Alighieri is a collection of jewellery inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Each piece corresponds to one of the poet's 100 poems. As the pilgrim journeys through the realms of hell, purgatory and paradise, he encounters mythical creatures, scraggy landscapes and terrifying demons. Just like Dante's subjects, each piece of jewellery is battered, imperfect and a little bit melancholy. Every piece tells a story, embodying a modern heirloom that will travel with you on your own adventures. I am so excited to announce that from August the 1st to the 22nd, the gates of Alighieri Old Town will be open, bringing loved ones together to reunite, shop, dine and explore in an old Italian piazza placed in the centre of London. Close to Old Street Station, Fort Dingley Place will be transformed into an Italian utopia, transporting you to the holiday that 2020 has not yet allowed. The town will offer Alighieri signature modern heirlooms, bespoke talismans, flash treasure trove discounts and one-of-a-kind souvenirs. In the heart of the piazza lies Casa Luna, the town's oldest restaurant where they serve antipasti, hand-rolled pasta and dolce. Visit alighieri.co.uk for more details and to book your shopping appointment in the Alighieri Old Town or to book dinner at Casa Luna. Meanwhile, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online orders to Refuge. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that today we are in the London flat of one of the most exciting and brilliant young painters working in the world right now, the great Samaya Critchlow. A graduate of Brighton University and the Royal Drawing School in London, Samaya is known for her powerful depictions of bold female characters and delicately rendered objects that she creates on both a mid-size and minuscule scale. Challenging and subverting cultural expectations of race, gender and power in the history of art, Samaya's sometimes icon-like work adopts historical and classical motifs from the likes of Rubens to Velasquez. Although rooted in this imagery, Samaya's works fuse traditional painting with the modern day, referencing film to hip-hop, which she explores in depth through commenting on the cultural class and the political dynamics of contemporary society. Often situated in an atmospheric and nondescript background with sometimes just one object on view that challenges the composition, Samaya's works allow the viewer to imagine a time and place for the subject. 
having exhibited across the globe at Marian Boski, James Fuentes and Fortnite Institute at New York, as well as part of the Great Woman Artist Residency at Palazzo Monti in Brescia. The reason why we are speaking with Samaya today is because she has just unveiled her first ever solo exhibition in her hometown of London at Maximilian William, an incredible show titled Underneath a Bebop Moon, which I am so excited to find out more about. Samaya Critchlow, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Hello, Katie. <laughs> thank you for having me on. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. I'm so excited. This has been a conversation I've wanted to do for a long time, but especially excited having witnessed your show on Saturday and actually seeing those works come together. I mean, how does it feel to see all of those works in the show? It's been a really strange experience because I obviously knew over three months ago that they were ready and sort of got ready to hang it and then have only been able to hang it and just put it up and felt it's really exciting to see it in like a big white space and outside of the studio it's been interesting I think when I put it up I always say I feel like I'm this close to it I know it's like being in a mirror you know with everything you created and really like seeing myself and what I'd done and I was like oh my god you know <laughs> but yeah and so much work as well I mean it's incredible yeah I know everyone was saying that actually you know my grandma walked in and went oh you've been working really hard <laughs> like you know and I was like yeah well thank you <laughs> but I think because prior to this I've only ever had quite small exhibitions which have been yeah. reflective of the size of the work we knew because it's London and it's my home and the first proper show that I've had here and I've been working on it for over a year letting it slowly come together so it was really exciting to see different parts of my work that maybe I hadn't ever considered that we'd show like watercolours and then the drawings and it became a lot bigger than what I would have ever thought I was capable of. And I should add to the audience you know it's also in these sort of two sections so you have this wider room but then you also have this intimate kind of chapel in certain parts of the space. Yeah so I thought a lot about the experience of visiting a gallery and there have been times when I've gone there and you sort of want to be comfortable or in and out of small and large space so I asked if we could design like a smaller room which has a corner door and a chair in the middle and I think it worked because as well having these really big paintings next to much smaller ones it yeah. was about going in and out and being able to experience them but knowing that there's a whole lot going on around you. When we were hanging the show I like things slightly off centre yeah. or slightly jarred even though it tends to like equal itself out in a thing that makes sense but slightly off centre so like having that little room just seemed right and also allows you to focus so much more and then next to that yeah. room is these minuscule my the favorite <laughs> painting of the slippers that once the... attempted to be stolen at a previous yes show they did. <laughs> I... <laughs> it's a max after them no. <laughs> i think they're probably nailed to the wall this no. time <laughs> hopefully <laughs> and that was it as well actually because in that small room, there's the two tiny paintings of the little figures on the wall. I don't know how often people think about how, how powerful something quite small can be, given like a huge amount of space. Yeah, and the little slippers are just quite dominating in their own right. But I mean, this show, you know, it's, it's been a couple of days since I've seen it, but it really left me thinking about so much, <laughs> which I always love, you know, after you've seen a film or you've seen a show or anything, and it, mm -hmm. it really kind of sticks with me. And I think mainly due to the fact that it made me realise that I've never seen anything like it, which might sound silly, but I think that you've opened up this whole new side to figurative painting that really challenges the past particularly, as well as the contemporary. So I want to start by asking you as well, why do you choose to work and explore the female nude in your work? 
Well, it was never a conscious decision as such. I remember the whole time of being at university, I really wanted to paint figurative works. Yeah. And it was so uncool and uninteresting to all my tutors and the whole of what it seemed that painting was supposed to be about. And I think I like struggled to move through that. And by the end of it, I left feeling so disillusioned. I like stopped painting the figure at all. Yeah. And I always remember being weirdly conscious of wanting to paint women, but not knowing like how and not being able to move forward and like explore it. So when I decided to go to the drawing school after Brighton, I was doing a lot of life drawing and looking at a lot of art history. And I was not seeing even what I wanted there, like women and myself. And I don't know what it was I was looking for, but it it wasn't there. So there was a Max Beckman painting and it's him holding a cigarette turned to the side. It's really strong and powerful. And I just thought I'd never really confronted myself as what I look like and who I am. And I'm complaining that I can't identify or in my head it's become so confusing. So I thought... I just turn it back on myself and I just made a decision to draw myself and use myself as the life model. And it started off being like portraits of my face. And then, slowly, you know, I end up doing like drawing myself nude and stuff. And it kind of just transpired. And then I stopped referencing myself and kind of allowed that to be the basis. So it became a natural thing. And also, I think I was very conscious like when I got to the drawing school that I was doing a lot of life drawing and... There seemed to be like an acceptable way for nudity to be viewed. And I was also watching this TV series called Love and Hip Hop. Yeah. And there are like these women and I find them really incredible. It's really interesting. And it's also one of the only sole black cast TV shows that I know. And it is a bit of a trash TV, but it's really interesting. And like comparing them and their bodies and like sexual freedom that they seem to have. And then thinking about the idea that sexual freedom in the life room is okay because it's studious and it's intellectualized. And then thinking about myself and how you view yourself. And it seemed so important to remove the clothes and everything and really look at oneself and what you are at the base of it all. Also, flesh and skin is far more interesting to paint, you know? (laughs) It is. It's so interesting, you know, you say this, like, sort of what's accepted? Oh, because it's institutionalised. And it's crazy. And I'm really fascinated because the exhibition guide to your show starts with this really interesting quote by the feminist Angela Carter. A free woman in an unfree society will be a monster, which is taken from her 1978 essay, The Sadian Woman and the Ideology of Pornography, which is a feminist reading of the Marcus de Sade. I mean, can you tell us about this quote and why you were drawn to the writings of Angela Carter. I re-remembered Angela Carter from having studied her at A-level English doing the Bloody Chamber and how well, I remember the class being like you know it's got necrophilia and it. it's really dark and horrible but the women are the centre of it. Then after like making all these paintings about women and them being nude I think it was about a year and a half after I was working on this that I found the book The Sadian Woman and like as soon as I saw the title it called something like Um, through pornography or whatever so I was like wow I need to read this (laughs) and just for someone to look into such like a dark place in society and like things that people normally don't want to focus on like we know Marquise de Sade's novels are very problematic on so many levels and they're quite disgusting and quite gross so to look in a corner of humanity and sexuality and take such exciting information from it by her kind of saying that Saad was positioning women as like having sexual liberation and thinking about what is sexuality as a construct and you know because 
there's sometimes this feeling that women, I don't know, like I feel women are sexual yeah. as well, whether it's because people have ideas of sexuality or what a female body is, as women will have our own sense of that and desire and that's totally normal and acceptable. And I think that quote, if I were to say on a microcosm of my own experience was that at the drawing school, who I was and how I looked didn't fit into the history and it wasn't often that there were I don't even think there was ever like a black female model maybe there was a mixed race model, but you really? know life wow. model yeah actually when I think about oh it there gosh. were black men but never women and that that's a common theme in history so in order to fit in I had to make myself comfortable but that was going to make everyone else very uncomfortable by me positioning the black woman in the middle of it all and I didn't think any of my tutors or anyone really liked what I was doing but I felt really liberated finally so I think that quote is just I do I think it's important for saying that as a woman perhaps you're other to society as are all different races and anyone who's in opposition you're not the dominant yeah exactly you're not, you're not dominant the dominant yeah exactly yeah and I think, you know, I was looking up some bits, but about, you know, in a way, you must first kind of be monstrous in order to be accepted because people view, you know, and it's the same as Dessard talking about Justine and Juliet. Justine tries to always follow the rules and she's constantly humiliated and at the hands of other people, whereas Juliet decided to take on the position of power and be as cruel as the cruelty she was being dealt. And I think in a weird way, when I was at university, I didn't paint black people because I didn't want to be seen as... I didn't want to be just categorised yeah. as one type of artist. Yeah. And then I realised, but I'm denying myself yeah. who I am and I'm projecting on projections that other people have formed about what it means to be a black person, what it means to make work about that experience. And I need to not care about that and make what it is I want to make. And by like not wanting to be something so you avoid doing it, it becomes a bigger sense of alienation from it. I think mm. that's what I felt. Confronting yourself and not letting what society's ideas of what it would mean have control. And I think that is the same as that saying, like you'd have to be a bit of a monster because you'll be seen as a bit of... Instead of just the other, you now take on a role. And I think the other's always been associated with a bit of freak show. You know, people who are a little bit weird or look slightly funny, they become the basis for a lot of characters or, yeah. It just puts into context how, you know, judgmental or how kind of unaccepting society yeah. is. And I think the fact that you're dealing with art and there are these kind of almost icon-like works. Mm. I mean, the first impression when I saw your work was Northern Italian, sort of Spanish, sort of 17th century painting. Yeah, <laughs> But, you know, you are really subverting cultural expectations of race and gender. And how do you find that women and especially black women have been also perceived in the history of art? And how do you want to challenge this? Well, one of the really underwriting factors, I think, was that my mum had me when she was really young and she was studying art. So she was 20 when she had me. And so... As a child, I saw her go through her being, her MA, and yeah. I kind of got to be there. <laughs> That's and, um, amazing. Did you no. attend her class at Wimbledon or something? Yeah, she couldn't get <laughs> childcare one day, so I had to go with her. And um, I had a great time. And I'm sure it's really... I loved you. <laughs> Who is this genius? It's like five years old. <laughs> I know mum goes, oh, the tutor was going, she's really good, you know. I'm like, it's probably because I'm a kid and I've got no like inhibitions about what I'm doing. I'm just like, let's, fuck it, let's go for it. But um, she was very feminist like incredibly 
powerfully so like my mum is she's she's powerful yeah Yeah. and so is my grandmother all very powerful women and I have always had throughout growing up really strange things about how to deal with feminism because I don't think I really understood in the same whilst I was at Brighton there were aspects of it that I didn't relate to myself and I couldn't fully wrap my head around it like what I don't know it seemed to always get reduced to things that were so simple that it seemed to miss the whole point of what we were really looking for yeah and then you just get men talking about women not shaving their arms (laughs) and that became like the campaign and face of feminism and and in a much deeper way and I think my mum's from the generation but also if you look at art history you know all the different waves of feminism it kind of seemed to be a thing like anti-portraying the female body to say f you to art history you know because men did it for so long women felt so degraded by the images that had been produced but I always found 17th and 18th century art even nudes really beautiful maybe on the aspect of looking at them from just a painterly so there's this confusion of loving something and I also just felt like well that's maybe not even my experience because black women were so rarely portrayed am I not allowed to kind of look into the nude because of that and I was like no you know I'm just going to do what I want, you know, by censoring it as a rebellion to something, how does it exist further? But my mum, so feminist and really amazing, and I've learned a lot of really interesting things from her, but it did make me question. People used to be like, are you a feminist? I'd be like, I don't know. Yeah. And it felt like the right thing to say was, yes, I am a feminist. Yeah. As I got older, I was able to like negotiate the terms of what I was interested in. And I like that Anne de Carter was looking somewhere like Marquise de Sade, to maybe understand female liberation. So I read this book called Unmastered, a book on desire most difficult to tell. And I think it's all about, just it's such a nuanced thing, isn't it, desire? Like, where does it cross the line into something that's behaviorally acceptable and unacceptable? And I think that was the same thing with feminism. What's the good feminist, the bad feminist? How do you look? How do you dress? What are your thoughts and opinions? And also just making it, I think, you know, feminism is such a funny thing because I think even 10 years ago, it was like, are feminists these people who don't wash or whatever, you know, stupid things like that. And it's like, no, 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 you can be a feminist and you can be, feminism, you know, means equality. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's it's ridiculous that people kind of exactly concentrate on these fickle things that miss the whole point. And it's like, no, 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 let's all just embrace this term. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that was a really important thing I read where this woman had said it can be different priorities for different women because women wanted to work and have independence and freedom. And she said, as a black woman, I actually want to not have to work so I have more time to spend with my family and my kids her experience wasn't you know the black women's experience wasn't that I got to be a housewife and not work I had to contribute to it and so there's this discourse of being more understanding but I love the fact that your women they can be in these nondescript backgrounds or they can be in these 17th century French manners or something and what I'm really interested in though are the titles of your figures some of them are Big Shelley in a wig or Dolly an incredibly powerful woman and then there are other works such as Figure Holding a Teacup I mean do you find that there is a difference between titling some of the works and leaving others left open? I think with titles, if it comes, it comes, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. And sometimes they seem to be so specific, but I think the ones that I leave, some just have much of a personality that's very immediate to me, and then some perhaps do, but like you say, some of them having backgrounds and some of them not, that maybe has more of an influence on how much... Because you can read a painting in a totally different way from seeing the title 
I guess there's one painting, Granddaddy Clock Power Structures. Yeah. And that's not a specific title, but that's a feeling that I got from the painting. You yeah. Know, there's this huge grandfather clock. It's very dominating. And in a weird way, it kind of felt symbolic for like a, a male figure or a patriarch or whatever it was. And you've got this woman leaning on it. And it's like the idea of what a power structure is and... Again, that silly humour of playing on kind of tacky, porny pin-up titles like Daddy. So sometimes they're more open to perhaps a whole specific set of ideas. I think they all are, but the other ones are more particular characters. But what's so fascinating about Granddaddy Clock is yeah. the fact that this woman looks as though she's from the 2010s or the 2020s <laughs> and with this pink crop top. And then yeah. it's as though she's resting on this Granddaddy Clock. I mean, are you thinking about time and place much or are they kind of imaginary scenes that you create? So I think by me studying live drawing, I, I did it consciously so that I could draw from my imagination and them not being set in a place is partly because... It, Painting is really hard yeah. and it takes time to get better at it and to, you know, there'll be things that I've thought about but I haven't necessarily been able to materialise and it's just been a process of learning as much about the medium as whatever it is that I want to say and I also always made a rule never to try and, like when I was younger, you have all these grand ideas about what you think life is and like trying to, and I'm still young so I sound yeah. silly <laughs> saying that, but um, what you think you need to put emphasis on and, and I don't think it ever works for me if I'm like I'm going to make a painting about this it's going to say it never does so I made a really strict rule with myself that this work started from being very unconscious and sitting and letting whatever came out come out and that was the basis for it so the fact that they're not situated in specific places is probably just something that's going to change, like the more recent ones have. And that's because I can tolerate painting chairs in a way that I couldn't before, you know. I was really interested in the figure. And I think thinking of little figure holding a teacup, that teacup is almost as important as, you know, and that's what paint is. And I think to make a good painting, the whole surface needs to be treated in the same way. So that eye contact with a teacup or eye contact with a foot to express that across the board. Mm. I mean... What I love about the, these works, they're so fearless, the way that they stare back at you. And it's as though we're kind of interrupting their scene, yet they're kind of allowing us in, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And and when I've been in the studio before sometimes and there's loads of them, you're like, wow, <laughs> you know, this is a really an intense and strange place to be. I feel like I'm being looked at, but equally no one's bothered. Like when my grandma walked into the exhibition... One of her favourite works was watercolour. It's called A Study for Little Susie. Yeah. She's kind of leaning on this desk, looking like that. And my grandma just was laughing. So she's like, you know, she's just like, oh, God. You know, like, <laughs> so over it all. And yeah. <laughs> and so, it's true. I don't know. that there, There's such confrontational images, but I think they're faces. And I always make the faces up totally and let them come through. I'm always interested to see that I have noticed if I'm in a very bad mood, <laughs> they can take on like a scowl. And that's really interesting. But I, I mean, that's what I mean. It's as though they're almost these kind of worlds that we enter as well. And, and just since obviously having known you for a while, having yeah. seen a lot of your work, but also just, again, just sending, I think, three and a half hours at your exhibition. I mean, and drinking up our scripts on Saturday. <laughs> but just looking at them over and over again, you really kind of find that they are these... Worlds, And so when I'm looking at someone like Dolly, I'm thinking, 
Who is she? Why is she in front of that chest of drawers? Why is she in front of that painting? She has this pose that is the most, it's as though she's like coming back to Rubens and the old masters. This is what I love about it is the fact that these women are like noblemen. They are kind of the equivalent of kings. The way that they own that painting and dominate everything about it. And don't give an absolute fuck if we no, are yeah, looking is. at whatever part of their body. It's true. And I think that in itself was a powerful idea. And that for me, honestly, in the way I've changed as a person, I think is totally reflected in these paintings of having to confront who you are, what you represent to yourself, let alone what you represent to other people. There's a text by a philosopher that Philip Guston referenced in one of his paintings. And I think one painting is named after, and it's called something like The Mirror Image as I. And it's all about how you know you exist, but you can't see yourself. Here without a mirror, I don't actually, I'm not, you know, I can look at my hands, yeah. whatever, but yeah. I can't see myself in full view. And that as soon as you interact with the outside world it determines also how you start to see yourself so your process of being is kind of like a self-conscious idea of experiencing yourself as you are but through the eyes of others and I think having been a black woman and having been so invested in the history of painting and having to rationalize with the idea that I'm not going to exist in it in ways that I like but that doesn't mean that I can't be interested in it and that it doesn't mean that there isn't potential to move forwards. Do you find that you see yourself in each of these figures? Not directly. I know they started from me and people have commented, are they you? Or that they, some of them do look like you. I think Dolly particularly has very much her own identity and character and doesn't look relative to me. But in the same way, I homogenised my own face to be like a blanket basis for how to construct a face and kind of let it go freestyle with paint after that so I don't think they are me but I'd say they are psychological or metaphysical yeah. experiences that I feel they like, totally are they're yeah. also like yeah exactly yeah. sorry no no <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it is you know you see big Shelley in a wig or dolly or figure even just as you know I'm a white woman but even just yeah, yeah. as a woman having all these but different Katie, experiences. that's exactly yeah. <laughs> what was so important to me. It was that on the basis they're women, you know, I'm black, therefore I've, I have painted them as black women, but they totally exist in this fantasy land also of being not totally realistic, not far from what you know to be. It doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter what race you are of how you experience them because I think they are so psychologically involved and that appeals to kind of a cross... The border, you know, that's, yeah. we all understand different experiences of having had enough or whatever yeah. it is, you know, yeah. or being like, yeah. Or just, you know, be able to be ourselves and yeah. be the women who we want to be. And again, coming back to this idea that there are some women projected in pop culture who might be deemed as not intellectual. Of course they are, you know. Totally. It's, it's, um... No, I love it. And that was the thing that's so interesting, like about Nicki Minaj and Cardi B and Lil' Kim and stuff. They rap super explicitly about yeah. being a woman being sexual about life whatever and this is what I loved about love and hip-hop as well it's like all these women they're super glamorous they're one <laughs> perception society has and then you'll just ha see them dealing with totally normal life situations or having a conversation about something that is reserved only for a specific type of person that we don't associate with them but the, the point is that they are multifaceted and they live full lives and they experience every type of emotion that anybody else ever does that they are engaged with 
be it politics, family, they're not just one sexual icon. Yeah. You know, but so what, that's a part of their character. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's so interesting because as well, thinking about this fusion, and I've, I've spoken to you about this before, you know, someone like Floria Knovich also kind of blends mm. these very pop culture with the kind of Rococo and the Baroque. And I almost yeah. find that even though you could say they were the kind of polar opposite of society, okay, you know, pop culture low cult whatever mm-hmm. even though that shouldn't no, be that. no no but that's and the then high culture is supposedly what the national gallery and rubens yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. what if we put this together and i yeah. feel people like cardi b all these people who are kind of these icons in society yeah they are kind of the equivalent of versailles and like, yeah, like baroqueness yeah. i love you saying that that's such an interesting way to look at it yeah because they are pop culture which is i guess like a a court if we were to say like you know the court of someone they're all the different parts of it like a whole society reflects on and and looks to it is really interesting to put it that way yeah and what I find really interesting is that it almost does feel like there is this built narrative around them as if they were a cinematic still I mean do you think you invite people to project their idea of a story onto it I think so. And I think that's the beauty of painting and paint is that unlike a still from a photograph, the surface is always moving and the potential to see new things and to create further stories is always there. And I think that's really interesting. Like with Guston, you know, one person will associate something with something and someone else won't. And so I think there's a lot going on. And yeah, I'm interested that people should be able to do that. And I never really want to spoon feed anyone. If I'm talking about Film stills, I did really think, you know, again, that's another environment where I don't see women like the women from Love and Hip Hop or myself in those environments frequently as the protagonist. So I did want to take and create roles. And I was like, what happens if you merge these worlds together? Like, you're allowed to do like a David Lynchian background and then have Cardi B and then one of her music videos. She's in that hat and it really reminded me of a David Lynch. She's in the funeral car. I think a lot of rap music videos, they're really considered Mm. and really interesting. And they do really say a lot about personal experience and society. And I did think about that a lot, actually. And that was something I was interested in, how to co-opt that into my paintings. Do you think musicians like that, do you think they're almost kind of looking back at history and saying, almost reclaiming that space? Yeah, I mean, I'd break down... There's a Ray Schumann video where they're all on the golf course. Yeah. You know, we know what golf's associated with, what type of person plays golf, and it's certainly not these two skinny young black men. You know, it's kind of like taking the piss out of it, but equally very aware that this is an environment that you don't fit into. It's not really yours contextually, you know. And I always found that really interesting. And there's this performance, I think, of Nicki Minaj at the VMAs, and she's on this glittery horse or something but anyway they're all jockeys like dancing around her horse riding and jockeys that is a very upper class activity English heritage whatever you know like to bring those two worlds together but they do it so often in rap videos and I think you know some rap stars even bring painting into it it's like well what is painting you know this idea of like a museum being like the kind of epicenter of status and power and I think that as black people haven't had that sort of cultural capital, this is kind of like the first, I mean, civil rights only happened 65 years ago. It blows your mind. But if you think of a society that's living in the dark ages, you have to live to survive. But as soon as you start making a bit more, you got a bit more free time on your hands and you can think about stuff. And I think that's when the arts come into things on a grander scale. 
and the idea of yeah like being somewhere like an art museum that is a real cultural capital like art transcends financial status through different generations and, and periods of history and to have access to that as a whole like race of people that haven't really and it to mean something is quite powerful I guess in sort of like reinterpreting the jockey or like golf or whatever it is so all the characters in this exhibition though they're so fierce and they're so bold and they're erotic but there was one painting or one drawing that I found quite emotional actually yeah. which was blackhead study and this was actually one work that really stayed with me for the last few days and it's this close-up of this girl and can you tell us about this work in particular yeah that work it does feel very emotional actually and I think it being this really dark quite worked into pastel charcoal which I don't always do and there was another work that I had showed called triple xyz blackface shooter and it was similar I'd sat down with charcoal and done this drawing and it had become all about being black and being killed for being black and this was before everything has yeah. erupted recently but I don't know with that one it is it's very it's very dark and and it seems quite sensitive but again it's something I haven't consciously thought about other yeah. than to sit and do a study of a head and kind of let it evolve and take on its own life form and when I think back to it and I think of naming it black head study there just seems something inherently like sad and, and self-knowing about self-observation in it, but also the hair's done up. It's, it's like the um, glassiness in her eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know when I think of it as if something's... But she doesn't quite look like she's seen anything yeah. or not totally glazed over at something in the middle. It's kind of like probably one that's more based on the idea of being a self-portrait without being a self-portrait in, in that if she were a real-life person, it carries that sort of self-reflection. Because I find it interesting, you work on such a sort of different scale as well. You know, something like the Granddaddy Clock, you do a sort of miniature version and you do a larger version as well. I mean, I want to talk to you about this idea of minuscule painting because coming back to this idea of the old masters, yeah. miniatures was such a sort of fascinating yeah. and popular topic, especially in the kind of 1600s. No, definitely. Because, like I said, I wanted to work from my imagination and from drawings. And then I was like, OK, how am I going to do this with paint you know it's so complicated like light and volume and everything how is this going to be believable and I remember going to the National Gallery with my grandpa and we talking about the miniature studies and they would be used then to make the larger ones so actually they were supposed to be studies working that size was meant to be in making studies for larger paintings and then it took on a life force <laughs> of its own and and that kind of um also, I think naturally I've always been quite inclined to work small. I don't know if it's a confidence thing, but I just the idea of making big crap paintings is really unbearable. So to like work <laughs> through them on a small scale first seems manageable and already so complicated. Yeah. But it was kind of amazing for me to see something work in a way in which I'd been told wouldn't you shouldn't paint figures and women and painting and then, you know, always at school it was about the big paintings yeah. and it always seems to be big paintings yeah, glorified or, yeah exactly totally. like that's the only way to claim your stake yeah. but actually having these really intimate and powerful <laughs> objects yeah. was really you know that was exciting in terms of like process totally and I mentioned in the introduction as well they're kind of like icon like as well which I think mm. kind of enhances this saintly figure or something yeah. they become like relics or something <laughs> <laughs> I guess because they've got such strong characters yeah. and they do have these surrounding 
gilded surroundings yeah. as well. No, and it's like I always like saying that I don't put anything onto them. I know that as an individual, I'm fiercely political and always have been and very interested in looking at things from slightly perverse point of view, but to not consciously be like, if I draw this, it will be that. To see them come together, kind of like living a life, right? Like yeah. you live a life and you look back at parts and they kind of accumulate meaning that in moments you won't have known and then you put it together. Yeah, I guess when you're asking like about film stills, I love art house movies and like David Lynch and yeah. Eraserhead was a really impactful film that I saw when I was younger. You know, Eraserhead is about this guy um, and his wife and they have a baby and the baby turns into a monster. So it actually felt quite relatable, like a real life experience that you might have that you could abstract. People probably do have children and people have freakouts about it and you're like metamorphosis, like the guy that turns into a bug and he yeah. doesn't realise he's a bug and everyone's like disgusted, you know, and your own experience of like having a baby and maybe finding it really disgusting. And in real life, we know our children don't turn into actual monsters, yeah. but to be able to put that idea, it was such a simple concept, but it seemed so amazing to see it visually in such a different way. Yes, totally. And I'm intrigued. You mentioned earlier about your grandfather taking you to museums when you were young and you seeing these relic-like objects of desire works. I mean, how much do you think this actually influenced your work with objects today? I grew up in a family where I got taken to the v in the British Museum frequently all the time. And my grandma made quilts and her house was full of trinkets and paintings wow. on the wall. So... That was my environment and not everybody would respond to it, but I reflected on it. And also in a weird way, I think being a black woman and an outsider to it, it's slightly enticing in a strange way. And, and maybe there's an awareness that these things hold a value that other things haven't. I don't know. It's, I think it's a really complicated relationship with it, actually. That, but then equally, it's a personal thing of liking little objects and bits and pieces. And I've always been like that, you know, take me to a car boot. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I love intricate things and I like the history of them and I find it fascinating. But they really feel like these kind of objects of desire that you can like yeah. hold in your hand when you see the slippers. They're, they're yeah. so sort of careful and considered and every, you can see every single stroke and it's a matchstick size but it's so yeah. kind of loved. <laughs> well I think that's probably just because they're in the same way I'd say I love every one of the characters that I paint. It's the same with the objects. They're objects of desire or yeah. intrigue and I think when you are that interested by something, it can become charged, especially when you're taking, having seen it and painting it. It becomes full of kind of all your energy as much as it is just a pair of shoes. Well, Samaya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. As is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there's a female artist living now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh, you know who I'd love to meet? Artemisia Gentileschi. I would be really interested to have a conversation with her about what she was making and what it was like during that time, because it's not really part of history, is it? We kind of don't know so much on it. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, <laughs> Samaya. <you. laughs> 
Thank you all so much for listening to the 34th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Samaya Critchlow. Samaya's fantastic show, Under a Beatbot Moon, is at Maximilian William Gallery in London until the 15th of August, so make sure you check it out. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller, and if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel.